This is a Federal News Network podcast. If passed its prologue, the CIO SP4 services contract vehicle is in danger of being smothered by protests. It's supposed to be the next big offering from NITAC, the NIH Information Technology Acquisition and Assessment Center. Unsuccessful vendors have filed, now get this, at least 117 complaints with the Government Accountability Office over just the last two weeks. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me with the latest. So, Jason, CIOSP4, a lot of interest in it from industry. Tom, this is one of those big, major, mega GWAX government-wide acquisition contracts that a lot, of, a lot of vendors are following. They want to be on it. And it's also one of these things, if you're not on, you're not on, and you're going to be cut out of this market for a long time. So that's why there's so much interest in it. And it's all around, it's supposed to be focused on health care and health IT. But really, Tom, it's, it's been really expanded to really a catch-all of IT services. Uh, the Defense Department's a big user, and they buy a lot more than just health IT services from it. HHS, a big user. They buy a lot more than just health IT services. And again, it's one of the few government-wide acquisition contract GWAC. So I think a lot of folks want to get on. And it's been ongoing now for the better part of, of a year in terms of the draft RFPs and the and the bidding and the, and the preparation and everything that goes into it. And that's why there's so much, again, attention to it. And 117 protests, that's a really big number. My calculation, that's about 8% of all of the protests GAO gets in a year anymore. I asked GAO if this was the biggest uh, number of, largest number of protests they've ever received for one contract. And they said, we don't really keep records like that. But as someone said, as a back of an envelope analysis, we think this is probably the most we've ever had on one case at one time. So it's 117, according to the docket. And a lot of this time is focused on the self-scoring system that NIH, NITEC used. And this is something that was popularized by GSA. Hey, if you reach a certain level, anybody over that number, and that number could be 10,000 points or 8,000 points or whatever the number of points are, you will make the contract. And it, it really is supposed to help avoid protests and really give folks a, a do or don't situation. And what the concern is, and I talked to one a vendor on background who said to me, we were in the 95 to 97% tile and we didn't make the cut. That really surprised us. And I think a lot of vendors are saying, how can I be this close to 100 yet not make the cut? Even though NITEC offered debriefings, they were not given a lot of information. And according to the one vendor I talked to, they said, even with our debriefing, we had nothing left to do but to protest because we weren't sure why we didn't make the cut line. And Tom, the other piece of this that we've had a lot of discussion about you and I when it comes to CIO SP4 at NITEC is around the mentor-protege program. They put very restrictive, then they went less restrictive, then they went more restrictive, they went back and forth around mentor-protege. And that's a lot of concerning because a mentor, a small business mentor can get a ton of points from their protege that a small business who does not have that relationship can't get. And I think that, that also caused a lot of problems. Right. This is a contract vehicle that has both large and small vendors on it. Right. There's no CIOSP4 small business like there was CIOSP3 small business. What, what NITAC did, and they tried something innovative to their credit, is to bring everybody on, but, but kind of do it in pools and say, small businesses who are women-owned will only compete against women-owned small businesses. Or small businesses that are small businesses will only compete against other small businesses, so you're not competing small to large. The issue that came up was this mentor-protege agreement and joint venturing and how SBA changed the rules and, and then how that those rules were interpreted. And again, a lot of reporting that we've done over the last six months or so that really explains that in much more detail. Now, 117 protests, this is all going to take time. Could this actually bring down the whole program? And what form would that take? A new CIOSP4 
Redux or SP5 or what would they do? Well, I'll answer the back end of that question first and go, I don't know. I'm not sure anybody knows. If you look at what GSA did, they just started over from scratch. And that's why we have Polaris. But yes, I talked to Emily Murphy, former GSA administrator, a long time a procurement attorney, a procurement expert on Capitol Hill. And she tells me the reason why they made the decision to end Alliant 2 Small Business was because the crush of protests and the length of time it took to get through it. And Small Business Alliant 2 only got about 40 or so protests. So it's not even close to 117, as you see with CIOSP4. And she said, listen, it took so long. And even after GAO, they went to the Court of Federal Claims, that extended it even longer. What basically happened was after two and a half years, everything changed. The What they needed from the vendors changed. The pricing changed. GSA just said, enough, we'll start over. And that's why we have Polaris. And I think that's the same concern here with such a large number of protests. Now, again, Emily Murphy told me, I think in 40 days, she said, you'll get a sense of what's going to happen. Because in 40 days, that gives GAO enough time to review it, start talking to the vendors, start talking to NITAC, and potentially signal a direction they'll want to go. Hey, vendors, you may want to drop out because this should have been a pre-award issue and your post-award or post-solicitation bid, this is all moot. Or NITAC may come in and say, all right, we're going to take corrective action. We realize that we're in trouble and they'll take corrective action and GAO will dismiss all those protests and there'll be corrective action. Or you'll know, hey, this is going to go the 100 days that GAO has and potentially go to the Court of Federal Claims. I think those are all the kind of the factors we're looking at to see how can this go forward. So we've learned from GSA. Now we're learning from NITAC. I mean, what's going on with soup these days? That's the the third leg of the stool of these big ones. Well, you bring up soup. It's funny. Soup 6 is on the path. They just had actually a reverse industry day just a couple days ago. And I talked to some folks from Soup 6, and they were very excited to kind of get this process started. So nothing around Soup 6 we have to worry about yet in terms of protests. But what we did learn from previous things, including GSA, is what GSA is doing with, for instance, Oasis Plus, which, by the way, Tom, they just released the draft RFP for Oasis Plus the other day. A little bit, a little bit of breaking news for you here. They have the draft of Alliant 3 as well that was released a couple of weeks ago. And these are big contracts where they've set that marker already. They told you. The cutoff will be, pick your number. Again, I'm going to make it up, 8,000 points. So if you're a vendor who says, I can't reach 8,000, I'm not going to even spend money on bidding. And when I talk to folks about bidding, like Bob Lofeld, Lofeld Consulting, longtime bidding proposal helper, he said, on average, folks spent $200,000 bidding on CIOSP4. I talked to the one company I mentioned, they wouldn't give me a number, but they sent 200,000, maybe even a bit low in terms of how much money they spent. So I think the one thing we can learn is, is, is a couple of things. First of all, GSA had a lot of success with their 8A stars program where they said, okay, these 50 people made it, but the other 50 who didn't make it, we're going to help you get to cohort two. And then they made a second award for cohort two and they said 30 people made it. And then they got to cohort three and said, okay, the rest of you made it or, or we've helped you twice. You're just not going to make it. But they kind of helped you get through the process so they could get as many folks on as possible and avoid this protest saga. I think that's a really good lesson learned. I think Oasis Plus is taking a very similar lesson learned to say, hey, we have on-ramps, continual on-ramps. So if you don't make it the first time, there'll be other opportunities for you to get on. And I think that may be the solution to these big GWACs, big multiple award contracts going forward. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad 
was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. 
I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.